intrinsic uh, to every single one of us is this longing to experience a love that lasts a lifetime. And yet, many of us would say we don't really know how to go about that, what that even looks like, and even like the video you just heard, if it's even possible. That's what we're going to be talking about in the series, Spark. I would like to first give some maybe preliminary thoughts before we dive in. Uh, first, I'd like to answer who this series is for. And so if you're single, anybody single in here? Not proud of it, I see. Um, it's for you. We could try to Anybody single in this room? Uh, two, two are proud of that. Okay, okay, okay. Um, dating is for you. If you're divorced, this is for you. If you're newly married, this is for you. If you're oldly married, this is for you. Because this is talking about how do we experience healthy, whole, lasting love relationships for our entire life. I'd like to first say a word to you really proud singles in the room. Either by, for some, by choice or by circumstance of your life. And first, I'd love to say, or want to say this, that um, Christianity actually elevates singleness. And, and we miss this so often in the church, but remember who our Lord and Savior is? His name is, hello, Jesus. Yep, it's the right answer, church, thank you. Uh, and, and, and here's the reality. Jesus was single... And yet he was not incomplete. And so as we start this conversation, I don't want us to miss this and somehow err on the side that finding the right person is going to complete you because we will have missed the mark. Second or third is my goal. My goal is not for you to agree with me. Uh, My goal is to cause you to think. My goal, my aim is to help you maybe examine some of the cultural narratives that we have, the presuppositions that we've assumed, and as a result, accept as normal and go about them and how they're impacting our life. And so if you are arguing with me in your head, this is actually successful. My aim for those who are followers of Jesus is not to help you understand what the church believes about sexuality and love and God. My aim is to help point to what God actually says and what it means for us and how do we live our life in light of that. You'll notice at the back of your notes, there's a section for further resources each week. Those will be a little bit different um, pertaining to the subject matter that we have for those who want to dive deeper. This morning, we're going to be talking about a love deficit disorder. I believe that in our culture, in our society, we suffer from a love deficit disorder. It is absolutely crazy and mind-blowing to me that we live in the most uh, connected time in all of human history, and yet at the same time, when we are so intimately connected There are so many who feel so isolated and alone. And so what I want to do with the time we have 
is simply diagnose what I believe is the problem, why we live in a love deficit uh, society, and then talk about how do you raise the love quotient in your life. If you walked into this room this morning, and the minute I said that, you said, yeah, in my marriage, um, there's, there's a deficit. There's a longing. There's a need to be met. In my singleness, in, in my sudden singleness, in the process of this divorce, there is a love deficit. And in those moments, how do you raise the love quotient in your life, in my life? And so let's look at diagnosing the problem. Um, in our culture today, there is a sexual ethic that we have embraced. Uh, it is a presupposition of our society. Uh, it's rooted in all the way go, uh, back to uh, the sexual revolution of the 60s. And those who uh, have studied history realize that the first sexual revolution actually happened in the 20s. Uh, but fast forward, most of us know the 60s. In the sexual revolution of the 60s, it reshaped America's attitude, thinking, and approach to love, sex, and God. Now, what many of us don't realize or readily uh, acknowledge is that there was another sexual revolution that has deeply impacted and shaped the way we do relationships, the way we go about love, and the way we approach sex. And that is the sexual revolution of the 90s. Any guess what that was? The internet. The internet has fundamentally changed how we approach relationships, how we approach love. And the, we already started with some baseline beliefs about love that were being shaped in the 20s and 60s that have then be, found their fruition in application now online. And so now, think about this. Now I can be sexually active and alone. I can be sexually engaged with another human being, and yet it is all over a screen. It has fundamentally shaped and warped our understanding of sex, love, and relationships. I, I can look at porn. I have my son in here. You have to explain what that is later. I, I can look at porn all by myself without the shame of going somewhere else, without the shame and stigma of somehow having a magazine come to my house. And underneath all of this is an ideology known as sexual liberation. It goes something like this. You are a sexual being with cravings, appetites, and desires. In fact, the ideology would go to this extreme. The most important thing about you is your sexuality. That is our cultural narrative. You have the right to fulfill that appetite with whoever you wish, however you wish, and whenever you wish, as long as it's consensual. You have the right, and, and it would even go further than that. It's not just you have the right, you absolutely should to fulfill that appetite, that desire, whenever, however, with whoever you wish, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. As long as it doesn't impact anybody else, as long as there's two agreeing parties. In fact, the ideology of sexual liberation would say this, to restrict one's sexual appetite is oppressive and close-minded. Now, look at that. Think about this, because this is what is presumed to be true in our culture today and how much of us in America are operating. Now think about this. We would never use that same philosophy in regards to food. 
When we talk about appetite, cravings, desires, our need for food and appetite, we would never approach it this way, right? Whenever, however, whoever you wish, as much as you want. No, no, no. We go, no, no. We want healthy. We want to give you healthy options. Certainly you can eat as much as you want. Certainly you can have as many desserts as you want. But it has a devastating impact on your health. And in like manner, the same is true. And yet we haven't thought critically about the things we just buy in with our sexuality. C.S. Lewis, think about this. This was put into print in 1954, so just before the sexual revolution hit. He's writing from England about this, and he's writing in the area of sexuality and says this about this ideology or ethic. Like all powerful lies, it's based on a truth. Sex in itself is normal and healthy. The lie, however, consists in the suggestion that any sexual act to which you are tempted at the moment is also healthy and normal. Apostle Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are permissible. Not all things are beneficial. Now the result of this sexual ethic that we've embraced is that sex and sexual activity then has shifted from a physical expression of love and intimacy to that of expressing personal fulfillment. Sexual activity and sex has now exist for me and my needs, my wants, my desires, to, to my own fulfillment. And so we live in a society saturated with sex and yet starved for love. Stephen Covey, author of The Seven Habits, writes this, We are free to choose our actions, but we are not free to choose the consequences of those actions. We live in a society that is celebrating the freedom to choose and yet diminishing the consequences of the actions upon which we choose. And as a result, we are experiencing devastation in our relationships. And young people, I gotta, I, again, I don't expect you to agree with me, but I just hope you start arguing with me. Because how we're going about relationships isn't working. And it begins all the way back with what we believe to be true of how to go about them. And here's what I'd suggest is the root issue of why this is so destructive in our culture. Is that we have compartmentalized our sexuality from our spirituality. We have compartmentalized and said, hey, your sexuality is over here and this is your part of your life and your spirituality is over here and they don't meet, they don't ever connect and you can do whatever you want over here and you can then be good over here. And the reality is, is what happens is you live a fragmented, broken life and you wonder why there's dissonance in your soul because you're not just a sexual being over here, a spiritual being over here. You are a human being created by God who has sexual and spiritual all at the same time, the totality that is you. And when you compartmentalize, ultimately what it does is it breaks down your level of capacity for intimacy and love. Tim Keller says why this is so important in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. And I'd encourage you, if there's one book out of this series that you read from the resource section, read this book. Sex is a God-invented way to say to another person 
I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. It's a God-invented way. It's more than just physical. It's more than just an act and a fulfillment of appetite. There's something deeper there. It's a declaration to the person you're intimate with. I'm yours. You can have all me and I have all of you. Now, I think the reason that we really struggle with this or have missed this is because I think so often in the church, we haven't addressed it. Even me saying sex sent some of you like, oh, can we say that in here? <laughs> right? One person said, you had to say sex about 50 times before I became comfortable with you saying it in church. We haven't been taught clearly on human sexuality. Or when we have, it's been awkward, kind of like your dad talking to you or your mom talking to you. And you're like, no, don't talk to me about that. Or it's been incomplete. See, your story is fundamentally a story or a search for wholeness. Your sexuality is a part of that story. It isn't the whole story. Your sexuality isn't the most important thing about you, but it is a part of your story and your search for wholeness. And ultimately what has happened, the reason we compartmentalize, or maybe I'm just going to say for those of us perhaps in the church, our spirituality and our sexuality is we've come to believe that fundamentally God is anti-sex. That God is against it. He's down on it. He's a prude. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that the church's understanding of sexuality, that it is archaic, it is naive, it is oppressive. If you study and examine the scriptures, what you'll find is that couldn't be further from the truth. God isn't anti-sex. God created sex. It's God invented is what Keller said. And he didn't get that all on his own. He said, it's God invented. He designed you and made you. Think about this. God made you a sexual being with a sex drive. It is actually a very good thing that he has created in you that he celebrates over you. Think about his very first command. Have you ever thought about this? The very first command in the Bible. We always think of them as don'ts and don't do this. And we think about what God's keeping us from. And he's a fuddy-duddy God that's keeping us from fun. His very first command, Adam and Eve, is this. Be fruitful and multiply. Translation, get busy with it <laughs> and have lots of kids. His first command I made you for this. Go have fun. Enjoy. Explore. Delight. If you ever study the Bible, you'll come through a book that will take you off guard. In fact, our missional communities are studying it right now as we speak. It's called Song of Solomon or some Bibles it says Song of Songs. It is so erotic that the translators really struggle with bringing the full meaning of the text. It is so intimate talking about this expressive, dynamic, 
passionate, compelling love relationship between a man and a woman that, that it makes you want to blush. It, it was such that monks weren't even allowed to read it because it was just too much for them. You know, they didn't want to get the mind going. Uh, it, it was too much for some people. They tried to allegorize it to say it couldn't be about a man and a woman. Oh, that's all. It's like, no, no, no. This is the celebration of relationship. But God also says sex is more than just about sex. In Genesis, we find all the beginnings. He says the beginnings of relationship, the beginnings of intimacy. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his wife. And hang on, I'll read it for you. Will leave his father and mother, not leave his wife. I knew, I knew. <laughs> like, wow. I had no idea that it said that. Okay, he'll leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That that word talks about a bond that's inseparable. It's like crazy gluing two pieces of paper, like you just can't get it apart. That's the picture of that word united. And the two will become one flesh. And they were naked and felt no shame. That... That God's picture of your sexuality is so much more than a physical act. That in the Hebrew scriptures, when, when they talk about sex, marital relationships of, of sexuality, they use the Hebrew word yada. This word means to know and to be known. It's the picture of full and complete intimacy. Intimacy is just simply, if you want an easy definition for it, is in, to, me, See, that you get to see completely who I am. When, when, this, when this is first described in Genesis 4.1, it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. Yada, to be known. It's intimacy, it's vulnerability, it's oneness to the nth degree. It's being physically, emotionally, spiritually naked and unashamed. Like I see you. No, no, no. No, no, no. I see you. I see all of you. And it's breathtaking. And I'm not running away. And it's that moment of being fully exposed and fully coming together in full intimacy because you're completely accepted and loved. Yada. This is yada. So your search... For wholeness is part of sexuality, but it's not the whole part. In fact, when, when the Bible talks about love, it says to experience healthy or whole relationships, healthy or whole relation uh, or sexuality, there is a foundation upon which you have to build upon. The New Testament, in fact, the Hebrew does as well, but the New Testament uses a few specific words for love. And we often just use the same word for love, right? And so we talk about, we use love for love. That's the only word we have for love. And so I can talk about, wow, you know, I'm so in love with my wife. And then you talk about it in the sexual connotation, and they made love. Or that was, you know, and then they made a baby. Hello. And, and then we talk about it in relationship to a sandwich we just ate. I loved that sandwich. That was amazing. 
Now, here's what I want you to see, because here's, I want to, I want to shift with this. I, I, I want to shift from this whole love deficit disorder and where we've been to then begin to build upon a foundation of how do we grow or how do we increase our love quotient to experience healthy, whole relationships, healthy, whole sexuality. And so just take a look at this real quick for you. Is the three words, primary words in the New Testament uh, in Greek are the words eros, phileo, and agape. Yes, this morning you will get a little Greek lesson. Here we go. And so eros is the Greek word for sexuality or physical love. And you can just write that, sexual or physical. Phileo is the Greek word for friendship or companionship love. And whereas agape is the Greek word for self-giving, sacrificial, selfless love. And you know, we can see these words used in our everyday life. So eros is where we get our English word erotic, right? Phileo, you think about, uh, we have a city even has a name with this, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Now here's God's design for love and intimacy and ultimately sexuality. God's design for love and intimacy is that agape is the foundation of your relationship that you have experienced and so then expressed, and we'll talk about that in a minute, agape love, that you give selfless, sacrificial love to the other person. And what happens is if you are able, and if we are able, when we give agape love, then our eros and our phileo grow together in healthy relationships. When eros is the foundation, by the way, of love, what happens is it moves from selfless to selfish love. It's about my needs, my desires, my wants, and my gratification, right? And because it's about my sexual appetite, and that's much of our culture, you flip the triangle the other way and phileo is the base of it. And it may, in some instances, have more of a, a, a cultural look of acceptance, but it ultimately becomes codependency. Because my, my need is on you and your companionship and your friendship, and I'm incomplete without you. Now, when the Apostle Paul talks about this conversation with the church in Ephesus, he's really addressing how your sexuality and your spirituality meets. And let me give you a little bit of kind of background to what he's talking about. Because what he's talking about is to, the, is to the church in Ephesus. And if you know the Ephesus at all, Ephesus was the capital city of, for the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. It's this incredible city. It's one of the largest cities known at the time. I think uh, historians believe it's about the sixth largest city. Uh, and, and Ephesus was home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. And if you study, uh, this isn't the Greek idea of Artemis. This was a specific to that region. And people would travel all over the world to come pay homage and pilgrimage to the Temple of Artemis or Diana. And Artemis was the goddess of fertility, the goddess of new life. And so as a result, there's all sorts of cultural or, or cultic um, sexual, uh, what am I thinking of? Cultural uh, practices. Thank you very much. You did good. <laughs> and so one of the things we have to realize is we somehow think that our sexual revolution was like brand new. It's been going on for a long time. Because a guy would wake up in the morning, be married, on his way to work, stop by the temple. There was thousands, by the way, of temple prostitutes. Go have sex on his way in, on his way out. 
during certain festivals, there would be orgies and the like. Talk about sexual freedom. And then don't even get me started with the gymnasium and what happened in those arenas. So he's talking to a group of people that have a distorted view of human sexuality and relationships that, that have accepted the sexual liberation model. And here's how he begins this conversation. And I believe it's so imperative for us to understand because he begins with, no, no, no. You begin with agape. Notice what he says. He says, be imitators of God. So in your sexuality, by the way, imitate God. In your singleness, imitate God. In your marriage, imitate God. As you're going through that painful divorce, imitate God. How? As dearly loved children. Imitate God. How? As dearly loved kids. You ever watched a kid and his dad or a kid and their mom and how they just mimic? And that's what this word imitate is. Mimic. Copy. Imitate. There's times when my wife just laughs when I'm watching sports and I have my legs crossed like this and I have my hands above my head like this and then you'll look and you'll see my son sitting you know, on the floor next and he's got his legs crossed and his hands just like this and he's just imitating his dad because that's what kids do. And he says, for us, in our sexuality, in our love, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And by the way, that be, circle that word, that's a command. That's what we're called to do. And then live a life of love. Circle that word. That's another command. Live a life of love. How? Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, here's what I want you to notice. There's actually three different words for love, or three variations of agape in this passage. And we'll discover how do you actually increase your love quotient, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether, you, it doesn't matter where you're at. This doesn't like wait one day, someday. Here's what he's going to say. Increasing your love quotient begins by embracing that you're dearly loved. It begins by embracing that you're dearly loved. That word dearly loved is the Greek word agapetos. It means the object of one's affection, having a very special relationship. It means beloved. Right, right next to your notes, the word positional. This is what's known as a positional truth. It is your position in Christ. You didn't do anything to earn it, and so you can't do anything to unearn it. You are positioned as the object of the Father's affection because you're his kid. And he says, man, when I think of you, I love you. I delight in you. Oh, my precious loved one. And by the way, your heavenly Father has yada you. He knows you. He sees all of you. Yeah, he yada you, and he sees the things that you've hidden from him. He sees the things that you've hid from other people, the secret of pardons. He sees every single thing. He sees the hurt and the baggage and the shame and the pain. He sees all the stuff that you are trying to put on a good face and keep below the surface. He sees it all. He yada you. And you know what his response was? 
beloved. He didn't run away. He says, you are my great delight. You're the object of my affection. One of the most destructive things in our current state of relationships today is the looking for the other person to complete or fulfill you. It puts one a weight on the relationship that it cannot sustain. And two, it pushes another person in the place that only God can fulfill. And so what we often do in our relationships is we are on the quest to be worthy. Somehow declare that I'm worthy or wanted, that, that I'm valuable. Wrestle with questions like this. Am I worthy to be wanted? Do my failures make me worthless? Can anyone or anything make me feel worthy? And we go into our relationships in this love deficit because we're seeking worth and out of another human being. And by the way, there is something in you that God loves. And if God loves you, you must be worthy of love. See, the first step to increasing your love quotient is embracing that you are dearly loved. It is your position in Jesus, and nothing, nothing can change that. This is why that agape love has to be the foundation, and your foundation has to be first in your identity and who God says you are in the object of his delight, because you can't give to another person what you don't already possess. You can't express to them what you have not experienced. And you begin, just go, okay, I'm going to embrace I'm going to embrace, and I, I don't know if I fully believe it yet, but I'm going to embrace that I am God's agapetas. I'm his beloved. And then commit to living a life of love. Commit. Greek word here is agape, the self-giving, sacrificial love that gives the other what, I need, what they need the most when they deserve it the least. It's agape love. Agape is a choice, not necessarily a feeling. See, love is not devoid of feeling. It simply isn't defined by feeling. And so oftentimes, we wait until we feel like loving him, we feel like loving her, perhaps when they deserve to be loved. And here's the call is then, no, no, no. I'm going to choose to live a life of love. I'm going to make a volitional choice, not based on how I feel, but I am the object of my father's delight. And so I am whole and complete and fully loved. And so as a result, out of my position, I am going to love you. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. I'm going to give you when you need it the most. I'm going to love you. I choose you. I choose to love you. Let me give you an illustration about this. Um, for a long time, when people asked me, how are you? My response was busy, fine, um, if I was doing really well, I'd say this, busy but good. You know, you ever have that one? It's like, I'm busy, but I'm good. <laughs> and I realized, what a lame answer. I'm not putting any, uh, just for me, you can say that. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Did I? I 
But think about this. Huh. I'm a son of the King Most High. I'm forgiven and redeemed. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and I have eternity secure. God has blessed me beyond my wildest dreams. I'm married to the love of my life. I have three great kids. I have a shelter over my roof. roof you know what I'm saying. Second service, man. I'm just mixing up words. So I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start saying fantastic. How are you? Fantastic. What, how's life? Fantastic. I'm stinking fantastic. I am doing amazingly well fantastic. Because you know what happens when I say I'm busy? It immediately shuts down that I don't have time for you. Immediately says to the other person, well, I'm busy and I got my own thing and I don't have a place for you. You say, fantastic. Hey, now I got capacity. I'm doing better. And you know what happened? Because I made a choice to start saying it. And it was hard at the beginning. I'd be like, how are you doing? Fine, fantastic. That's how it came out. Fine, fantastic. And, and then eventually it just became an automatic response. So someone asked me this morning. I didn't even think about it. How are you doing? I'm like, Fantastic. And I remember, I actually am doing fantastic. See, what needs to happen for us when we're talking about love is we need to make a volitional choice. I choose today to live a life of love. And it starts as a habit. And some of us are in really bad habits and they need to be broken. And it starts with the decision where you say, because I'm loved, I'm going to choose to love. And I'm going to be fantastic. I'm not going to be fine anymore. I'm going to choose fantastic. And when you begin to go that, okay, today, I choose to live a life of love. I choose to love my spouse, even though she doesn't deserve it or he doesn't deserve it. I choose to love my boss. I choose to love my friend. I choose to love. And all of a sudden, you'll find it becomes your automatic response. First, raising the love quotient. Embrace that you're dearly loved. Commit to living a life of love because you are the agapetas of God. And so, would you live the agape? And finally, here's how we do it. It says, as Christ loved us, rely on the love of Christ to empower you. You are God's agapetos. So live agape, empowered by the agapao. Agapao, I love how Ephraim Smith defined it. The unconditional love of Jesus in us that is flowing through us to be a force of transformation around us. This isn't somehow pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps theology. That you have the very love of God flowing through your veins, the love of Jesus to empower you to do what you cannot do on your own. I can't love her. Do you know how many times she's hurt me over and over? I can't love him. The way he talks and what he says, it just beats me down. Agapao. The unconditional, unrelenting love of Jesus Christ flowing through you and me to be a force of transformation to the world around 
you. And so you start this way. You start your day this way. You start right here. Be imitators of God. Okay, how, 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 how? Okay. This morning, I'm going to embrace that I'm dearly loved. I'm his beloved. And so I choose. Hello. I choose to live a life of love. But I know that in and of myself, I don't have the capacity. So Jesus, would you do through me what I cannot do on my own? The spirit of God, the spirit of the living God, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells inside every single one of his followers. And we would say, okay, we're going to live out radical love empowered by him. The apostle Paul would say it this way, that the love of Christ compels him. What's moving you? The love of Christ. Love of Christ just is moving me. It compels me like, like it's an unstoppable force within me that I can't, I can't help it. And so let me just close with what loves ask. It's a question that if you begin to ask, it will just give you clarity on the next step on how to live a life of love. Love asks this, what is the highest and best for the other person? That's what love asks. Love doesn't ask, what do they really deserve? Love doesn't ask, how do I make sure I get mine? Love asks, what is the highest and best for the other person? Why? Because you are already loved. Your position is secure. Your identity sound. And so you're going to make a choice, and I'm going to make a choice to live a life of love. And realizing I can't do it, so I'm going to go to God and go, help today. What does it look like to give her the highest and best, to give him the highest and best. And by the way, when you begin to answer that as a single, when you begin to answer that with your sexuality, when you begin to answer that in your marriage, when you begin to answer that with your kids, it will transform you and the relationships around you. God, thanks so much for this morning. Thanks for your grace. Thank you that we come to you delighted, loved. And may we be a community so overwhelmed by your love, we'd be compelled to love those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.